The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Stewardship Through Respect with your host, Holly Wells. The model of being overworked, stressed out, and oblivious to the world around us is no longer viable. We need to become engaged and take an active stand for those issues that are important to us. Get ready to engage and interact with our discussion. Now, here is Holly Wells. Welcome to Stewardship Through Respect. Our program's mission is to promote education and resources on sustainable living. I Love Nature is our program sponsor. We are a young nonprofit organization. I am the president and founder, and I have a great passion and a willingness to advocate for each of us to realize that we are all global citizens of the planet. And I'd like to point out that Earth, it's one giant interconnected ecosystem, which we all reside on. And it's really never been clearer to me that we must all become better stewards of both our bodies and the planet. And tonight's guest, Scott Kellogg, is going to do just that. Scott is the educational director of the Radix Center in Albany, New York. And we're going to hear much more about that momentarily. He also teaches workshops. He has trained over 700 people through lectures and hands-on activities. And I actually came across Scott after picking up one of his books um, entitled Toolbox for Sustainable City Living, a do-it-yourself guide. So without further ado, let's just begin our discussion. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Fantastic. Again, there are so many areas we could just talk um, so many hours filled here, but let's talk about first your Radix Ecological Sustainability Center. It's amazing all the offerings you have on site there with your solar biosphere and just all the educational programs, but why don't you give us some highlights? Sure. So Radix is a nonprofit organization in Albany, New York, and we are a urban environmental education center running a demonstration site of sustainable tools and technologies that are designed to teach primarily urban residents with a special focus on youth how to have more local access and control over essential resources like food and water and waste management and energy production, putting a strong emphasis on designing systems that are simple and affordable with the goal of coming up with a model that can be replicated broadly in cities throughout the country and the world. So at this point, we have a one-acre farm um, where we have this demonstration site going on and focusing a lot on bringing in kids and school groups and teaching what we call ecological literacy and helping youth to have a greater familiarity with the natural systems that make it possible for us to survive that many times as a consequence of living in urban environments we tend to be disconnected from. And at the Radix property, we have a 20-foot by 60-foot solar greenhouse that uh, contains a number of different systems, including an aquaponic system. We grow a bunch of food in there. We do mushroom production. Uh, All these are designed as educational systems for local kids to come in and 
literally get their hands dirty through exploration. I love so it. And what's in a nutshell? Sure. And what's the age group of the kids that come? We bring in. We have all different age groups. We say uh, K through, or rather P through PhD, um, preschoolers, uh, elementary school. We have uh, high school students who come and work there on a regular basis, and we actually have a, a number of universities that we're going to bring groups over for tours at Radix as well. Fantastic. And how I definitely have um, through ilovenature.com, we have you there as a collaboration link. So people can go to ilovenature.com. You can click on it and find Scott's information there. It'll link directly to the Radix Center. And can they come and directly schedule events? Or is that something they do reach out or plan ahead to um, visit your center? So we always have uh, open houses and tours the last Sunday of every month at 1 o'clock. And people are welcome to come to those. Otherwise, they can contact us through the website and let us know if they'll be passing through Albany and we'd be happy to um, arrange something with them. Fantastic. And again, there's so much going on at the center. Before we dig into that, the Rust workshops, are they uh, separate or are they something different? It sounds like that's more organized. Is that something that people come and actually pay to participate in, that program? Yeah. So Rust stands for the Regenerative Urban Sustainability Training. And that is an intensive weekend workshop that we run uh, in the summer, typically uh, for one weekend in the summer, usually in July, where we spend the entire time going into a lot of in- intensive depth about sustainable tools and their te- technologies using Radix itself as a living laboratory. It means a lot, we think, to be able to actually put your hands on and these systems that we're discussing and to see them functioning in, in that applied context. So, yeah, that's something that we plan on offering again in the summer of 2017. And we offer a variety of war trade and person of color scholarships for that as well. So I encourage people to check that out. Fantastic. And you were talking on about some hands-on activities. Could you give us a specific example of something that they would do if they were at this workshop? Yeah, we do everything from soil building to actually quite literally putting our hands onto and into the aquaponic system to see the fish. We, um, we do a lot of mushroom cultivation, which is a fun thing to do. We um, grow uh, oyster. We teach uh, participants how to grow oyster mushrooms on urban waste products like coffee grounds and cardboard and how to grow shiitake mushrooms on logs. And we'll send participants home with some of those that they can uh, watch grow in, in on their own. We um, learn about composting systems. We learn about micro-livestock like chickens and goats and how those can be kept uh, in an appropriate way in an urban environment. So uh, a lot of different practical and useful skills that are applicable not only just in cities, but even if you live outside of a city, that many of these skills will be uh, just as useful in those environments as well. Fantastic. And I know you have bees on site. Uh, when people come, are they uh, in an area where they would be able to see the hive, or is that really somewhere kept more outside of your participants' direct access area? We do have honeybees on site. They are a key component of our educational system. We have them tucked against the stone wall, sort of slightly hidden, um, but still um, very much on view. And the bees play a pretty critical role in our farming system. They uh, 
have a five-mile radius that they will pollinate. So we really see them as providing a, an important community service because they are flying around to all the community gardens and neighborhoods, to people's backyards, um, plus our own gardens and fruit trees, and pollinating them and greatly increasing their productive capacity. Uh, it's also a part of our educational system. We think it's really important for youth to understand the role that honeybees play in ecosystems, yet also to, um, you know, know where honey comes from. And we also like to emphasize that we maintain what are called um, uh, sort of a parallel strategy of, of also providing habitat to native pollinating insects. Well, we love honeybees, of course, so we, we do have a fairly dangerous dependency on this single insect species to pollinate nearly 90% of our staple food crops. And as you know, a lot of their numbers are dropping off, partly as a consequence of them not being native to the North American continent. So we, um, you know, we also want to um, provide space and food for native bees and butterflies and wasps and other pollinating creatures. And we do that by keeping what we call urban meadow going around the periphery of the property where we um, allow whatever spontaneous vegetation to grow up and flower and provide food for them. So that's, that's all part of the erratic system. Fantastic. So um, could you explain a little bit about aquaponics for people that don't know what that is? Sure. Aquaponics is a very intensive food production system. It's a way to grow fish and plants together in a recirculating system in such a way where the wastes produced by fish are converted by bacteria that are also part of the system into nutrients for the plants that are grown. And the plants, in turn, purify the water. So we have one tank in which we keep the fish. We have a variety of species, including catfish and carp and koi, which is really just a fancy carp, sunfish, perch, bluegill, bullheads, a whole variety, all, all cold-tolerant fish species um, because our greenhouse will drop into the 40s in the winter. And they're swimming around in there, and they produce ammonia. It's a byproduct of their metabolism, which, if not removed from the system, can build up to levels where it's toxic. But, you know, as we know, ammonia is uh, actually just a form of nitrogen, which is uh, an essential macronutrient for plant growth. So instead of just collecting it in a filter like you would in an aquarium and then throwing it away, we have that ammonia-laden water flow through um, a bed of watercress where the bacteria on there convert that ammonia into nitrate. Uh, and the watercress itself absorbs the nitrate from the water and grows prolifically. We harvest on average about two pounds a week of watercress from this system. And then wow. the watercress itself purifies the water. So it's a pretty cool system. It sure sounds like it. And at your site, do you have, um, in addition to staff, are there can people volunteer to help, or is it more of a training program before someone could actually be hands-on? I mean, they can come to your site and see it, but can they actually come on and volunteer, or is that not part of the Radix yeah. Center? Yeah, we're always Fantastic. looking for volunteers. We always have work to do, uh, and, you know, a lot of times it's building soil beds or, uh, you know, working with the chickens or the animals. We um, run a CSA, which is a community-supported agriculture prob- uh, program, with local high school youth. 
who uh, are actually um, employed through the program, and they do the planting, the harvesting for all of the shares of produce each week, and they're also doing the accounting business. They're working with tablets, um, and in that way, we're really bringing urban ag and business skills together with the idea that not everyone's going to make a living as an urban gardener, but at least this way, they're coming away with some kind of marketable skills. So we're always looking for folks to, to help out with that and, and a whole variety of activities. Fantastic. And I know rainwater, that's something, rainwater harvesting, I've even mentioned I live in Chicago and it's urban here, but I would love to, I've not yet started rainwater collection, um, something you could kind of give quick guidance on that topic? Yeah, rainwater collection is a fantastic thing for people to be doing. And basically what it consists of is capturing the rainwater that lands on the roof of a building and having it be funneled into a container of one sort or another. And you then have it available for watering plants or livestock or whatever it happens to be. Um, rainwater, surprisingly, is actually one of the cleanest types of water there is. The hydrological cycle, which is the process of water evaporating off the ocean and coming down again as rain, is a purification process. So many of the impurities you will find in surface and groundwater will not be present in rain. Additionally, it's non-chlorinated, which is particularly important for organic gardening, where the goal is to culture healthy and diverse microbial populations. So if you're using water that's been treated with a microbicide, to some degree you're working against yourself. So having non-chlorinated water is, is, is great for that, and actually also essential for the fish tank, I should mention, because you can't put tap water in a fish tank. It will kill them overnight. So rainwater is good for that. Um, yeah, so we have a, a pretty big rainwater system, catchment system there, Radix. Um, and, you know, what we, we like to emphasize to folks coming in, too, is it's, it's a way that we can create a mutually beneficial, mutually reciprocal relationship between yourself and the health of local water bodies. Because when you're catching water off a roof and storing it in a container and letting it go slowly over time, you're giving it a chance to work its way back into the ground. Because what normally happens in a heavy rainstorm in a city is it rushes off all the pavement and the asphalt and the rubber rooftops. And especially in our oh. older cities like Albany and Chicago can overwhelm our sewer system and cause sewage overflows into the river. So this is a great way to prevent that from happening and also still be benefiting yourself. Fantastic. We do need to take a quick break here, but when we come back, I would love to uh, continue on the rainwater discussion. I know that there was more to say here. We had to cut you off, but um, we'll be right back after this break to talk more with Scott. Thank you. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This program is sponsored by ILoveNature.com. Do you love sustainability? Do you love getting to the point? Sustainability is thoughtful, planned utilization of the Earth's resources for the betterment of humanity. Sustainability awareness is crucial to the Earth and to humanity's continued long-term existence. We all need to participate. This is a global issue that impacts each of us locally. Visit ILoveNature.com. Respect yourself, the Earth, and humanity. 
That's E-Y-E, lovenature.com. If you're busy, stressed, and can't ever seem to find the time to add in those new healthy habits, you need to check out Lisa Lutan's Busy, Stressed, and Food-Obsessed show. This program will help you discover easy ways to improve your health and happiness. Plus, you will pick up all sorts of tips on better eating, fitness, relationships, how to manage stress, and a lot more. You'll feel yourself becoming healthier just by tuning in. Listen live every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. I Love Nature supports sustainability, and that begins with self-love and self-care. Take a moment and ask yourself, do you often feel your batteries need to be recharged? Do you regularly wish for more time in the day to tackle everything on your to-do list? Are you continually delaying personal vacation planning? It's time to reclaim your life's purpose. Break out of your rut. Visit ilovenature.com. Get out and enjoy nature and some physical exercise. That's E-Y-E, lovenature.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are tuned in to Stewardship Through Respect with Holly Wells. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to respect at ilovenature.com. That's respect at eyelovenature.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back. We are talking today with Scott Kellogg. He's the Education Director of the Radix Center in Albany, New York. And before the break, we had just started talking about rainwater, and we did have to take a break, but I love where you were going. So if you could um, finish your train of thought there, that would be fantastic. Oh, yeah. But basically just how that's a way to sort of facilitate um, concern and connection with the, the well-being and the health of, of water bodies in cities. And, and, you know, that's something we like to talk about a lot as well, because, you know, a lot of our American cities have been built on purpose near a river or, in your case, in Chicago, a lake or the ocean. And, you know, economically and ecologically, that was the primary purpose for that place existing. And we haven't treated our waterfronts and our, our water bodies with the greatest level of respect. A lot of times we've located industrial centers there or in, in here, in the case of Albany, have actually constructed interstates that run parallel to them that make it quite difficult to access them. So a lot of the use in our city have never actually been down to the river. So doing things like rainwater connection can help foster uh, a sense of awareness and relationship with the well-being of the river. And in addition to that, we uh, will take youth on kayaking trips. We actually build things called floating restorers, which are um, almost like giant floating constructed wetlands that we make out of recycled plastic bottles that water plants are rafted onto. And we'll deploy those into the river, and they can actually help uh, clean up some of the pollutants that are flowing through the water bodies. And again, all this is to trying to promote a sense of, um, of, of connection plus justice and equity within the urban ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, that's great. I know that earlier we kind of touched on the bees and really that how they're the nature's pollinators. And you'd mentioned, you know, 90% of our you know natural food supply, they're really in touch with that. You have other um, critters there that you partner with bugs. You mentioned you kind of have these black soldier flies and these eating mealworms. This is all in silkworms. Can you kind of yeah. expand more on them? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. We uh, we do have a number of symbiotic partnerships with different insect species, and honeybees is one like we just mentioned. They are they are a highly domesticated insect, um, and and probably the only species of insect that I'm aware of that is even more domesticated than the honeybee is one that you just mentioned, which is the silkworm which is a species of uh, flightless white moth that, while it's in its larval state, while it's a caterpillar, only eats one thing, and that is the mulberry leaf, which is a species of tree that grows abundantly like a weed in Albany and a lot of other cities. So we raise silkworms. We... um, get them as little babies and we collect mulberry leaves off trees and feed them and watch them grow. And when they get to a certain size, we actually use them as a feed for both chickens and for fish. And we'll let a couple of them hatch and reproduce and keep the, um, the population cycle going. But that's a way for us to build a food chain for our livestock from what we see is a sustainable terrestrial source because it's really important, especially with fish, that we're not feeding them uh, proteins that come from the ocean because part of the justification for doing aquaponics is that it can help to reduce the tremendous pressure we're putting on oceanic ecosystems on account of our incredible demand for seafood. Um, And so if it's done correctly, that can be a way to be promoting greater health and, and regeneration within oceanic ecosystems as well. So that's one example. Um, you also mentioned black soldier flies, which are a species of insect that in its larval state also is particularly good at eating what we call putrescent wastes, which are things like meat and dairy and cheese, which are a little more difficult to compost in a regular compost pile, but these guys will rapidly devour those types of materials and also turn into a little insect larvae that's about 50% fat and 50% protein that makes a pretty good feed for chickens and fish. So uh, lots of ways to partner with a whole variety of species um, to create a real, a real multi-species muddle is how we like to think of it. Yes, I love the integration of it all. I mean, there's just, it's, it's all, it's amazing. It's fascinating. How long did it take you, and this is probably a question that's hard to answer, to create and really establish the center? I mean, all of this integration points, I know parts of it probably started before the others, but how long of a, a effort was that to get going? Yeah, well, it's important to mention that this is kind of the second time around for me in doing this. I ran a similar organization in Austin, Texas from 2000 to 2009 that was called the Rhizome Collective, where we had a warehouse in the middle of the city and had a demonstration of urban sustainability and provided low-rent space to a number of different social and activist organizations. So, you know, I learned a lot from that and have brought them to Radix. So we've really been on the ground running at Radix since um, 2011. So this is year five we're going on now. It took us about two years before that to get permission from the city to start the project. We had to get a a use variance to run a non-profit charitable organization on a property that was owned residential. So 
that was a that was a struggle, you know. But we we persevered and we stuck through and we got the approval. And um, you know, that's an important part of this work is really kind of challenging the, um, the systemic barriers to the more broad scale implementation of sustainable practices, and and essentially blazing a trail that makes it easier for other people to come in behind you because. Most people, you know, have enough to deal with with just putting food on the table that they're not going to get into uh, a legal struggle. So we like to see that as a, a very important and noble type of activism in itself. But, um, yeah, you know, in the five years we've been on the ground and running at Radix, um, things have kind of just unfolded one after the other. You know, the system grows increasingly complex each year, which makes it all the more fascinating and interconnected, yet all the more difficult to actually ever walk away from. So my chances of ever going on vacation diminish each year. But that's okay, because I'm rewarded greatly for uh, for staying there. Yes, fantastic. And I know what you mean about growing pains and finding the blueprint. I mean, that's truly my um, life's passion. Truly, um, what I do for a living is I'm an IT finance consultant. And I love mm-hmm. doing that. And I love helping my corporate clients. But this is something that I just feel so strongly and that it's so critical that we get more leverage on this. And it's really what you just said. You go through the growing pains, you have the blueprint. And then to find your knowledge and find other people willing to do it, other organizations willing to sponsor and fund the initiatives, and then branch yeah. out and then create them in other areas. So I would love to talk with you more offline about this and definitely get something more going so we'll talk about that more later but um again um other topics that we can talk about um right now would be your bio shelter i would love to hear more about that sure so okay a bio shelter is that's a term that was coined by a group called the new alchemists um who worked in Cape Cod, Massachusetts in the 1970s, uh, co-founded by John Jonathan Todd, who uh, is, is known for his work on, on living machines and ocean arcs. And they um, created uh, solar greenhouses, which um, basically are greenhouses that are designed to be heated primarily by passive solar energy directly from the heat of the sun. And these are distinguished from conventional greenhouses, which um, are also known as sort of freeze and fry greenhouses, which means if the sun is shining on a conventional greenhouse, it can be incredibly hot in there, so hot that it might actually cook the plants. But if the sun is not shining, uh, it loses its heat incredibly quickly and things can freeze in there, thus freeze and fry. The solar greenhouse or the the bioshelter, on the other hand, is designed in such a way that um, it, it, it operates under the principle of what we call capture and store. So it collects all that solar heat from the sun and stores it in thermal mass inside the building itself. So thermal mass is a property of materials that more or less corresponds to their density. So water and earth and rock, those things all have a lot of thermal mass. And, and you can notice this effect if you ever put your hand on a brick wall in the summer after the sun has gone down and a couple of hours later it's still radiating heat, it's that same principle at work in an enclosed space. So you can sort of think of it as a, as a solar bank. Uh, we soak up that heat of the sun, and then at night when the temperature drops, that heat is released and reduces the amount of supplemental heating we might need to keep the solar greenhouse above freezing. So... That's, that's it in a nutshell. 
And, you know, it, it allows us to maintain green growing conditions throughout the year, which for me personally is fantastic. I call it my seasonal depression alleviation chamber uh, because, yeah, here in the north, uh, both in, you know, Chicago and the northeast of the U.S., we can have some pretty dreary, long winters, and it's incredibly helpful for me to be around green plants and flowing water and the smell of soil in the middle of December and January. Um, and plus, we get a huge jump on the growing season. We can get things starting to sprout and grow, get our, our vegetable starts um, happening in, in February. And and that way, then, when we're finally past the uh, the safe freeze date outdoors, uh, our plants are, are, are already months uh, ahead, and we can just get them in the ground and get a big jump on the growing season. Also, you know, great, just as a teaching center, because our school year is pretty much the opposite of the growing season, up here in the north at least. So, you know, in, in December and January, there's limited opportunities for kids to learn about living, growing systems. So when they come to the solar greenhouse, the bioshelter, they can see that. They can, they can put their hands on it. And, you know, we like to say to teachers, there's such a huge current wave of enthusiasm for the so-called STEM discipline, science, technology, engineering, math. What we say to teachers is, you want to get kids excited about those sciences, bring them here because you see the synthesis of chemistry and physics and ecology and biology and then add on a layer of economics and social sciences and, and let them get excited about that and then work backwards from that point um, in, in a, a genuine living learning laboratory. So, yeah, we're very excited to be doing that type of work in the bioshelter and it's definitely sort of the, the key central feature to, to Radix. Yes, I love it. And that's one of the core centers that I love about um, what I started I Love Nature for is really that's what personally you mentioned in the summer or in the winter that you do love being where you are because you have that hands-on approach. And although I'm in the city of Chicago, I am by the lake. I am lucky about that. But as well, I just love getting outside. We have these beautiful parks. And to me, it's just that connection with nature that really helps bring me back to being grounded. And there's something really to be said about the codependency that we have. Again, it's the circle of life where we both need each other to exist. So um, again, we're going to take another quick commercial break here. Um, and when we come back, I would really like to talk about how you promote biodiversity in the center. And again, I'm just so thrilled, Scott, to have you on the program today and just sharing your knowledge and your insights, because this is just, mm-hmm. to me, fascinating. I'm I'm passionate. I share your passion, and I just, I'm having a great time. So thank you for joining, and we'll be right back. Okay. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. I Love Nature supports sustainability, and that begins with self-love and self-care. Take a moment and ask yourself, do you often feel your batteries need to be recharged? Do you regularly wish for more time in the day to tackle everything on your to-do list? Are you continually delaying personal vacation planning? It's time to reclaim your life's purpose. Break out of your rut. Visit ilovenature.com. Get out and enjoy nature and some physical exercise. That's E-Y-E-LoveNature.com. 
Tune in to Happy and Healthy Living with Darlene Godwin to better understand the why on how you feel and find the right therapies, treatments, and programs to bring healing to the mind, body, and spirit. You can live a better life at any age. It's not just a temporary fix. Rather, it's a permanent, healthy lifestyle. Happy and Healthy Living with Darlene Godwin is broadcast live every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This program is sponsored by ILoveNature.com. Do you love sustainability? Do you love getting to the point? Sustainability is thoughtful, planned utilization of the Earth's resources for the betterment of humanity. Sustainability awareness is crucial to the Earth and to humanity's continued long-term existence. We all need to participate. This is a global issue that impacts each of us locally. Visit ILoveNature.com. Respect yourself, the Earth, and humanity. That's E-Y-E, LoveNature.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned in to Stewardship Through Respect with Holly Wells. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to respect at ilovenature.com. That's respect at eyelovenature.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back. Our uh, guest tonight is Scott Kellogg. He is the Education Director of the Radix Center in Albany, New York. And we were just getting ready to touch on the topic of promoting biodiversity in the city. And I can't wait to hear about this. Let's, uh, let's carry on there. Great. Yeah, so... Biodiversity in the city is, is, is a really important topic. It, it, it's surprising to a lot of people to know that many times cities can actually have greater levels of biodiversity than surrounding rural areas, particularly if those are agricultural areas that receive heavy applications of pesticides. In, in that regard, cities can act as havens of biodiversity for non-human life, particularly insects and birds and and other types of life as well. So we're really interested in the idea of of what's called reconciliation ecology, which can basically be summarized as designing cities in such a way, particularly underutilized spaces or obsolete spaces, in such a way where they can actually enhance biodiversity. So, look at, uh, for instance, one of the things that we do um, is build uh, insect hotels, which are blocks of wood with holes of different depths and diameters drilled into them that create habitat for uh, for different types of pollinating wasps and bees. And we will hang these on old walls that are sort of in neglected spaces where those critters can go in and, and live with them. But, you know, what we're really interested in is, is making the connection between urban biodiversity and social justice to show people that it's not just about preservation for its own sake, but that there's ways, again, to create mutually symbiotic reciprocal relationships between people and that non-human life. And, you know, a good, a good example is the idea of... Um, 
what we call synanthropic species. S-Y-N, meaning with humans. Um, pigeons are a fantastic example. Pigeons are a bird that's commonly reviled. A lot of people hate pigeons, and that's really too bad because they're pretty remarkable birds that um, have done incredibly well living right alongside us. They are just uh, thriving in the ecological niche that we have created for them. So, you know, we ask, is it possible to have a different type of relationship with pigeons? Are there ways that we can both, meaning both humans and pigeons, benefit from living with each other rather than us just trying to destroy them? And in the case of pigeons, there's a huge historical precedent for doing that. People a lot of times don't realize that the pigeons they see around in, in cities are escaped pets. They are feral animals. They were brought here for their manure and for their and as a food source. Um, they are very good at carrying messages. And you know, interestingly, they more than we chose to domesticate them, they chose to partner with us and live in our built environments. And and that's been going on for thousands of years since the earliest human cities. So. The pigeons for us are, are kind of symbolic of, of the idea of, of biocultural diversity, of forging healthier relationships between humans and non-human species in urban environments that, that benefit all of us. I love it. And on this kind of same thread, I'd love to hear about um, your apartment scale, sustainability. I know I've tried growing things. I clearly did not inherit my mother's green thumb. Doesn't mean I don't stop trying. And some things I've been able to produce, but um, I'm getting better. But uh, give us some pointers there. Sure. So the idea of apartment scale sustainability comes about from the, from the recognition that obviously most urban residents are not going to be able to replicate what we're doing at Radix because they're not going to have a one-acre piece of land in a 20-foot by 60-foot solar greenhouse. And in, in fact, access to land alone is one of the, the biggest obstacles to urban sustainability or, or even urban food production at all. Um, many people, many urban residents, don't even have so much as a backyard. So we, you know, we ask what... Uh, what we like to say is that Radix basically is operating as a hub of information and tools and resources to help people figure out how to scale these systems down to a level where they can be appropriate for, for what we call the micro scale, which um, is, is the apartment. So a couple examples of that, um, one would be um, microgreens, which are basically short rotation vegetables that can be grown in little one-foot-by-two-foot trays in very small amount of soil, about a one inch of soil, and way for urban residents to grow some nutritious greens in very small amount of space that they could put in just a window that gets uh, eastern or western or southern exposure. Um, sprouting, another great thing that can be done just on the countertop without any sunlight at all. Because it should be pointed out, uh, you know, second to gaining access to land, um, the fact that so many urban spaces don't receive enough sunlight to support vegetable production is additionally a, a obstacle to, to food production. So, um, yeah, sprouting, sprouting can be a great thing as well. Um, vermicomposting, having a worm bin 
in the home is another great example of micro-scale, apartment-scale sustainability. That is can be kept in a little 10-gallon plastic container, small enough to go on top of a fridge or beneath a sink. If you're doing it correctly, it won't smell or ever produce flies. And in that way, city residents can be creating a little closed-loop ecosystem within their apartment right there by feeding their food scraps to these worms who in turn are producing a incredibly nutrient and microbially rich fertilizer, which in turn can be used on houseplants or gardens or, or even sold. So lots of, of options for apartment scale, uh, small scale sustainability. Um, you know, because what we, what we tell people is, is just start with, with what you got and start somewhere. And, you know, and, and combined... There's um, a synergistic effect of everybody doing that together could, can have a pretty significant impact on on the amount of food that can be grown in a city and, and additionally the amount of waste that can be produced within city limits as well. I love it. And you mentioned sprouting, and I am very curious about this. I, again, have not yet done this myself. I do know it's a great source of uh, nutrients. Can you kind of elaborate more on that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm in... Uh, I'm a dedicated sprouter myself, and I just I do it on a very small scale level. I have probably a one quart mason jar that has a, a screw on lid with holes in it, and I keep it on my kitchen counter right next to the sink. And uh, my favorite thing to sprout are mung beans, M-U-N-G, uh, the little green beans. Um, when sprouted, they're particularly tasty. They're, they're also really easy to sprout. I've had really good luck with them. Um, you can sprout a whole variety of things. You can sprout chickpeas, you can sprout uh, alfalfa, you can sprout sunflowers, um, zuki beans, a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, and, And basically what it is, is you take those beans and you soak them for, I usually do for 24 hours, and that starts them germinating. And they start to grow using the nutrients that are stored within the seeds themselves. And the idea is that you would eat them before they actually start to develop any true leaves and and would need to actually photosynthesize. Now, the idea here is that the nutrients in that seed are basically by germinating the seed, you are transforming them to a state where they are much more biologically available than if you were just to eat the seed directly without having germinated. So um, I really see it as a way to um, be making some fresh, tasty, uh, I don't know if I'd quite call them greens, but maybe proto-greens right on my kitchen counter, and I put them in everything. I put them in salads. I I put them in smoothies. My, My children love to eat them. They're great. Sure. Where do you get, I like what you said, those, the mung beans? Where does one get yeah. those to even start the process? Um, they sell them at our local food co-op. A lot of times, natural food stores with a bulk um, section will sell them. They're pretty reasonably priced, about, I want to say $2 a pound at our local co-op. Um, yeah, but um, again, it doesn't have to be them. Um, you can sprout sure. uh, the whole, even even lentils. Lentils are a great thing to also sprout, and you can get those in, in any supermarket. 
And roughly how long does the sprouting process take? Is it different for different kind of beans? I mean, you said you put them in there in water and you kind of just let them sit. It's obvious when they start to sprout, but you know, when do you kind of know before the leaving happens is kind of a trick. I know you'll figure it out through um, trial and error, but yeah. to kind of have a, some kind of an estimate for us. Yeah, so I, you know, I will soak my mung beans for 24 hours and I'll start eating them right after that. I'll drain the water out and I'll start eating them right then. And wow. usually, you know, it depends on, on the weather, on the temperature. In the summer, they grow a lot faster and they'll usually grow, you know, they start growing that little rootlet um, one or two days, three days. Um, you definitely want to eat them before they, you'll, you'll know when they start to go bad because they develop little rootlets on their roots and they start to grow, get brown a little bit. And, and that's when they've gone too far. So, you know, for me, I would say anywhere between one to three days. Fantastic. All right. Well, wow, time is flying. So lots of great information. We are on our last commercial break here. And thank you so much for our discussion so far. I just love, again, your passion and your belief that it is possible to meet human needs while restoring the earth. So we will be right back after this next break to talk more about your ecological microeconomies. I can't wait to talk about that after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. This program is sponsored by ILoveNature.com. Do you love sustainability? Do you love getting to the point? Sustainability is thoughtful, planned utilization of the Earth's resources for the betterment of humanity. Sustainability awareness is crucial to the Earth and to humanity's continued long-term existence. We all need to participate. This is a global issue that impacts each of us locally. Visit ilovenature.com. Respect yourself, the Earth, and humanity. That's E-Y-E, lovenature.com. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune into Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. I Love Nature supports sustainability, and that begins with self-love and self-care. Take a moment and ask yourself, do you often feel your batteries need to be recharged? Do you regularly wish for more time in the day to tackle everything on your to-do list? Are you continually delaying personal vacation planning? It's time to reclaim your life's purpose. Break out of your rut. Visit ilovenature.com. Get out and enjoy nature and some physical exercise. That's E-Y-E, lovenature.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are tuned in to Stewardship Through Respect with Holly Wells. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to respect at ilovenature.com. That's respect at eyelovenature.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome. 
Welcome back to the program. We are here with Scott Kellogg, this week's guest, and we've really been talking about a lot of topics, and I'd like to just talk here quickly about the, I don't know how quickly it will be, but a high level about the ecological microeconomies. That's a mouthful, but I really love how you are blending it in with the business, so this is really great, because hand in hand, they do need to come together. People think that it's one or the other, and it does not have to be that way, so I'd love to hear about it. Right. So, yeah, we, um, you know, here in Albany live in the south end of Albany in a low-income neighborhood with pretty high unemployment. And so we're really interested in whether it's possible to be creating jobs, uh, economic opportunities for people, while simultaneously engaging in ecologically regenerative activities. And, you know, there's a, there's a number of different examples of that Um one that I'll talk about is is mushroom production, um, growing oyster mushrooms off of urban waste products. So presently, a lot of urban wastes are thrown into the landfill, which is bad for a lot of reasons. It takes up space in the landfill and also produces methane, which is a greenhouse gas. Um, so instead, what we like to do is try and intercept those waste products, uh, specifically cardboard and coffee grounds, and we grow oyster mushrooms, Pleuritus austriatus, which is a edible and common, really good-tasting mushroom, on those waste products. And um, then they can be harvested and sold for about $10 a pound, which is a pretty good return. Because um, really, you're starting with a one-time $25 investment of the purchase of, of spawn, which is, is basically the, the inoculum for the, for the, for the mushrooms. And once you get a culture started, you can keep it growing uh, nearly indefinitely. And here's the really cool thing. Um, Fungi produce enzymes that are capable of degrading persistent organic pollutants, things like hydrocarbons and PCBs and dioxins, very what we call recalcitrant pollutants that take a long time to break down in the environment. Um, so you can grow these mushrooms in a clean material and then harvest them. And then that leftover material, what's called the spent mushroom compost, is loaded with these enzymes. So you can take them and spread them across an area you suspect or know to be contaminated, and the rains will wash those residual enzymes into the soil where they can facilitate the degradation of pollutants in the ground. So what we imagine is... Uh, this is a great way to repurpose a lot of obsolete industrial infrastructure like um, old factory buildings because you could be growing mushrooms for the ceiling in there. And I should point out that mushrooms, unlike vegetables, don't need sunlight for photosynthesis. They can be grown in dank, shady locations, which we typically have in abundance of in cities. Um, <laughs> and and that, that works well for the reasons we mentioned earlier about how Sunlit space is certainly a limiting factor to vegetable production. So growing mushrooms, you know, floor to ceiling in these factory buildings, creating jobs for people, keeping waste products out of the ground, and then using the byproduct to promote ecological regeneration. Imagine spreading it in the soil around the factory that may be contaminated, and it can assist in certain instances in degrading pollutants in the ground. So that is a model for what we call the ecologically regenerative micro-industry. I love it. 
And you touched on already what you can do with the mushroom uh, waste products. And is that the same thing, the bioremediation? Definitely, yes. Uh, Mushroom remediation, also what's called myco, M-I-C-O remediation, is a part of bioremediation. And I should explain what that is. Basically, bioremediation is the process of partnering with naturally occurring organisms, chiefly bacteria and plants and fungi, to either degrade or bind up or otherwise sequester pollutants in the soil. And it can be done in some instances in a way where it's affordable enough and simple enough that people without extensive backgrounds in science and engineering can use it as a proactive measure towards addressing persistent pollution in their communities as a consequence of the past 150 years of industrial processes being located inside um, cities. And the, the legacy contaminants from those industries still, to this day, greatly impact the health of many of our urban residents. So there's um, a lot of ways to approach this, you know, from both sort of a, a citizen science angle of, of, of teaching people ways to use compost or fungi to degrade pollutants, to also just promoting best practices and general principles for safe gardening on, on a public health um, level. So, yeah, a lot of different components to this work and, and, and really key towards the work of creating environmentally healthy and equitable and, and just urban uh, ecological environments. Sure. And I'd mentioned earlier the reason I'd first uh, come upon Scott was through his books, um, The Toolbox for Sustainable City Living. So, again, you guys are more than welcome to go out and check that out. Have a very own guide at your own fingertips, other than just listening to the tips on this program. And in addition, as I mentioned on I Love Nature, we have links to Scott. But, um, Scott, do you have any um, direct way you'd like for them to get in contact with you, other than what I'd mentioned? Again, we'll have your links uh, through I Love Nature. But if there's any other way you'd like for them to reach out to you. That is the best way at www.radixradixcenter.org. I should mention that radix is the Latin word for root. That's what it means. Mmm, I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, we are, just have a couple minutes to close, but I would love to touch real quickly with what time we have left on your eco-literacy and your youth education program. We talked earlier about how they come, but do you have anything else to share quickly before we um, sign off? Yeah, you know, we really try and just provide programming for free to local public schools. We live in a rather low-income neighborhood, and um, a lot of these schools don't have budgets available to go on field trips. So, you know, a big part of the reason for locating where we are is, is about accessibility, to be within a walking distance for these kids. And, you know, it's great when they come. We love it when they come. Um, and, you know, really, they're, they're getting a snapshot, though, of a system that's evolving and changing dynamically throughout the course of the year. So what we really love to do is work with teachers and figure out how to integrate these systems actually into the classroom and into the schoolyard so kids can experience that ongoing and daily and and temporally dynamic relationships with these sorts of systems because that's that's where some real deep learning comes in. And, um, yeah, we want to just promote that all across the board. 
Yes, I love your program offerings. I love the diversity of what you have. I love the integration. I love the aspect of bringing business into it. You're reaching out and directly involving your local community. Uh, I, I encourage anyone who's in the Albany area to stop by. That's fantastic. If I was there, I would. And I'm still curious of making a trip out there myself. It sounds so fun. Um, so, yes, please, everybody, um, check out um, the Radix Center. Um, get in touch. Decide to go out there if you can. It sounds fascinating. I love all the education that you've already given us today on the program. I've been curious about trying sprouting, and you made it sound so easy. Um, I love alfalfa sprouts, but I'm going to try these mung beans. So that's very curious. Um, what's your yeah. second favorite sprout? Um, probably lentils. Mung okay. have a very crisp taste to them. I like lentils, though. They kind of have an earthier flavor, but mm. they're all good. Yeah, excellent. I love it. All right, we've got about less than a minute here. So any parting words um, for our guests on sustainability? Um, You know, I just want to encourage people to really think about, when we think about sustainability, environmental sustainability is a really important um, component of it. But to be thinking about issues of of social justice and equity as well, because really uh, when we talk about sustainability, you know, there's the idea of the social, the economic, and the environmental. And a lot of times the social aspects get disregarded. And we really need to bring that back into the forefront, too. Because um, when we live in a more uh, fair and sharing and equitable society, e- everyone does better. It's, it's, all, it's within everybody's best interest to pre- promoting that. So, yes, please remember that in conversations about sustainability. I couldn't have said it more. I thank you. We are out of time. Thank you so much for our guest tonight, Scott Kellogg. Again, check out the Radix Center, and everyone have a great night. Thank you for listening to Stewardship Through Respect. Please join your host, Holly Wells, again for another edition next Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll have more to talk about next week. Have a good weekend.